Special Counsel Jack Smith arrives back in Washington, D.C. from The Hague. A new trove, a treasure trove of documents that he subpoenaed in the criminal investigation of Donald Trump while he was in Europe awaits. And he has also been greeted by a new staff he has hired of some of the top lawyers who he's worked closely with in the past and some of the top lawyers in the country. We're also learning that a charging decision or decisions by special counsel Jack Smith may be imminent or at least coming in the next few weeks. And special counsel Jack Smith's investigation got a very good ruling this week in the federal criminal grand jury proceedings in Washington, D.C. in the criminal investigations of Donald Trump when federal judge Beryl Howell ruled that Donald Trump must turn over the names and the identities of the so-called private investigators who had searched Mar-a-Lago to determine if there were more stolen documents at the property. And the estate of deceased Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick filed a wrongful death lawsuit right before the expiration of the statute of limitations against Donald Trump and two insurrectionists for the murder. It's a civil murder case, in essence. That's what a wrongful death case is, seeking monetary damages based on the conduct that took place during the January 6th insurrection. And New York State Court Judge Arthur Engeron denied Donald Trump's motion to dismiss New York Attorney General Letitia James' $250 million fraud lawsuit that was filed back in September. So that matter will now proceed to trial the first week in October. And not only did Judge Engeron uh, deny the motion to dismiss, but he also sent an email informing Alina Haba and Trump's other lawyers that their motion was just so bad that he was considering sanctions, ultimately didn't grant the sanctions and just set this pretty much expedited trial date, but warn Trump's lawyers, stop with the BS, you are going to trial. And speaking of BS and chaos and mayhem and incompetence, all of those things we saw in full display in the House of Representatives, not by both sides, but by the MAGA Republicans who just humiliated themselves and the institution. Uh, over this past week, there was 15 roll call votes in the speakership race over four days of failure for Kevin McCarthy. Eventually, I guess the 15th try was the charm, and Kevin McCarthy became the weakest speaker uh, ever to preside over the House of Representatives late Friday night into Saturday, depending on where you were watching it. And the Republicans still don't have the votes, though, to pass a rules package, meaning we don't have a functioning House of Representatives. We didn't have a functioning House of Representatives this past week. What are the legal implications of the rule package, or shall I say the lack thereof, and how will that impasse be solved, given they couldn't even pick a leader? I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Popak. You are watching Legal AF. Those are some headlines, huh? Michael Popak, <laughs> as we kick off the new year. Don't be fooled by my smile. I'm a little bit depressed and disappointed this morning or, the, or today. Okay. I, I, I understand that. Yeah. You, know, you, you want to know why? I, I, yeah, I'd like to know why. A man of <laughs> few words, a rare, a rare Popakian quality. Tell us. 
I just got through binge watching 15 episodes of McCarthy trying to become speaker and I'm depressed that it's over, but I understand it's been renewed for a new season and it starts on Monday. So I'm feeling better. Isn't that season two of the Squid Games? I, I can't tell. I can't tell what. But let's get right into it. You like, you like that one, Popak? Yeah. Bam. Let's get right into it with special counsel Jack Smith. He's arriving back from The Hague. Look, while he was in The Hague, he was recovering from a bicycling accident. Uh, but he was doing a lot of work there, subpoenaing state and local election officials. And now as he arrives in Washington, D.C., He's got a trove of new documents that actually the January 6th committee didn't even get um, uh, and that the DOJ previously didn't get. These are some documents from Milwaukee County as well as Clark County. And he also subpoenaed a bunch of other states because one of the things he's investigating, in addition to just what happened on the day of January 6th, is Donald Trump's illegal conduct in his illegal pressuring, unlawful pressuring of these state and local election officials, as well as the fake elector uh, scheme, not to mention special counsel Jack Smith's also engaged in the criminal investigation relating to Trump stealing thousands of government records, including top secret sensitive compartmented records. And Jack Smith's staffing up, huh? He's bringing in some top lawyers who are now in private practice, who he worked with in the Department of Justice. Specifically, he's hired Ray Hulser, who previously led the Justice Department's Public Integrity Section, and David Harback, who previously served as counsel to a Trump adversary, former FBI Director James Comey. And they both had very high-profile jobs at the Department of Justice, very successful careers in private practice. And all of those signs point to a charging decision coming soon. In fact, that's what Bloomberg News reported this week. They said in a few weeks, I think I still think that's ambitious. My time frame is more April or May. But what say you, Michael Popak, as Jack Smith arrives in D.C.? Yeah, if if all that he's done is from The Hague, look out with Jack Smith getting two feet on the ground in Washington, D.C. I mean, he, the momentum that he already has, he made, he made a calculated decision at the very beginning, Ben, to use the existing uh, and respect the existing line prosecutors and everyday prosecutors that were already in place under... Merrick Garland, and rather than throw them out and start anew with his own people, having being a lifelong DOJ person, I mean, if you prick Jack Smith's uh, arm, it bleeds DOJ blue. Um, he, he liked those prosecutors, but he needed to add additional ones. And the first two real top prosecutors that he's added, bolted on to the existing group of 20 or 25 or so prosecutors that are already in place that he inherited, that he is now cracking the whip and driving. The two new ones are really great for justice because of their close relationship with Jack Smith. He trusts them implicitly. And because of their career record of going after people just like Donald Trump in positions of power and taking them down. For instance, Ray Holster was known in in his time in the uh, public integrity unit of the Department of Justice as Mr. Fix-It, but his real claim to fame was he was the number two and the right hand of one Jack Smith when Jack Smith was the head of the Department of Justice uh, public integrity unit under Loretta Lynch, and then took over that office, the public integrity investigation unit, after Jack Smith left. So there's nobody who's closer professionally or personally than than uh, Ray Holster to Jack Smith. And then they bring along 
Harbach, who Dave Harbach, who's current, who was currently at O'Melveny and Myers, a very large, well-respected law firm, but also had been counsel, as you said, to the FBI director Comey and has a lot of involvement. And these three together, or at least Holzer and Harbach, have gone after Senator Bob Menendez in a corruption trial and indictment, Governor Bob McDonald of Virginia, and Senator John Edwards. Now, not, not all of those turned out with, with perfect convictions, but it shows you that these people know exactly how to pull the levers in a, in a, a very intense, high-profile uh, position, especially with somebody who is an elected official, a current elected official, or running for office. So <clears throat> really great that the first two picks that we can see of Jack Smith adding his own people are these two people. Now, I think that, as you've said, there are at least three, if not four, work streams, feeder streams that Jack Smith is supervising the prosecution of and, and the grand juries related to it. Mar-a-Lago, yes. Fake electors and all the states related to the fake elector scheme in the battlegrounds. The election interference of Donald Trump in the battleground states, at least seven battleground states. <clears throat> and then um, for me, those are like the three main uh, work streams that are going on here. And the question is, where are the indictments going to be coming and how soon? I don't think it's a matter of if anymore. I mean, Jack Smith doesn't bring these last cherries on the top of the Sunday exactly. prosecutors if he's not getting loaded for bear to try a case against Donald Trump and others. You, and these people don't join him uh, just for exactly. the, the, the folly of... Hey, it'd be kind of fun to come back and hang out with Jack Smith for a while. That's not what they're doing. They're doing this because he's trying to get his first chair trial team in place, right? His A team, his dream team of prosecutors to try cases against these key people, including Donald Trump. And I agree with you. I think several weeks is a little ambitious, but I would think in the end of the first quarter or the second quarter of 2023, we're going to see indictments. What will be the first will be what you and I will handicap. Will it be Mar-a-Lago? Will it be Georgia, uh, the Georgia interference case? Will it be the Nevada interference case by Donald Trump? He made phone calls to those places as well that we've now learned through all of the um, through all of the new work by by uh, by Jack's people and what uh, what the DOJ under Jack are currently doing. People might be wondering what are these twenty five prosecutors and a hundred investigators doing every day. Well, part one group is looking and scouring the Jan 6 committee, 1,000 plus witness statements, A, to match it up with witnesses that they've already brought into the grand jury to make sure there's no gaps in testimony or there's no circular firing squad between witnesses. This witness like Rona McDaniels or the RNC says Trump did know. This other witness says Trump didn't know. They've got to, this is part of the factoring of whether they're going to prosecute this case and what the case looks like, both their own evidence and the competing defense evidence that would be put on as they evaluate the strength of the case. So they're doing that. They're scouring those 1,000 bringing new people into the grand jury. They're not done there at all uh, for these various uh, grand juries that we've identified. And they're getting the documents that you and I have identified over the last month or two since before Thanksgiving and before Christmas that were subpoenas that were sent to all the battleground states, to election officials, secretaries of state, and local uh, chair people of Republican parties in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, uh, Nevada, Michigan, and the like. And they're, they're now getting those documents. 
Those offices have reported that they've, a lot, of, a lot of them have reported they've turned in documents to Jack Smith. So he's got a prosecutor team that's looking at all of those emails and text messages between Donald Trump himself, people close to Donald Trump, putting pressure on elected officials to participate in the fake elector scheme, to, you know, throw out absentee ballots, to, you know, uh, participate in lawsuits, challenging the electors and the like. Because what Donald Trump thinks is just his innocent exercise of First Amendment rights as a, ca as a losing candidate to challenge the outcome of the election to a prosecutor is criminal interference with an election and the peaceful transfer of power. And that's the divide between Donald Trump and all those that still cling fealty to him, including Kevin McCarthy, who we'll talk about later, who already is on record as saying, thank you, thank you, President Trump, because I wouldn't have gotten the speakership on those last few votes without your phone calls. So the people that think Donald Trump, and you and I have talked about it, has now shrunken down to size and really doesn't hold any power or sway among a, a large group of Republicans, he does. And so... The, you know, the, the challenge for the prosecutors remains the same. He's got, they have an incredibly popular among the Republican base person running for office that they're going to have to make the decision to indict. When you talk about shrunken down to size, while Trump maybe hasn't shrunken down to size in the Republican Party, the Republican Party has shrunken down to size to zero integrity at all. I mean, what Donald Trump was doing during the proceedings was posting cartoon memes of himself sticking his tongue out. You can't get more embarrassing and humiliating than that. And Kevin McCarthy looks at that and goes, well, that was actually very helpful at a time when Americans are yearning for normalcy, and humanity and a government that functions, the Republican Party is just the exact opposite. But when we talk about function and functioning and working, we have to give credit here to Merrick Garland and the seamless transition from Garland to special counsel Jack Smith, with you mentioned about 20 of those lawyers basically who are already on the investigation pivoting to now work for special counsel Jack Smith as part of the special counsel's roles. Meanwhile, Jack Smith is then bringing in his own team to buttress that. And let's give a special shout out here to Merrick Garland because I know that he has a lot of haters. I think over time, people as the truth managed to permeate from a lot of the disinformation silos of people who would just reflexively attack uh, Merrick Garland. And I get the frustration of wanting it to move quicker, but let's not forget that there have been close to 1,000 arrests of insurrectionists and approximately half of those individuals have already been either found guilty in jury trials or pled guilty. The Department of Justice on insurrectionists in terms of their trials is batting 1,000. There may be specific claims. They're 10 and 0. <laughs> they have never lost a trial yet, including trying very difficult, seditious conspiracy claims, uh, charges against the Oath Keepers. Now they, will be now they will be trying those claims against the Proud Boys. And so you have a perfect record. You've climbed the ladder now. You've reached the point where you've passed the baton over 
to special counsel Jack Smith, essentially the LeBron James of prosecutors, who's building out the dream team of other prosecutors. There's no better textbook way of handling it other than to say, I understand the fact that we all wanted it to go quicker. However, sometimes the you know the quickness of something the the is not necessarily equated with the carefulness and the diligence that is needed. And speaking of diligence, one of the things that Merrick Garland was doing, and now Special Counsel Jack Smith is doing, is having to continue to fight to get documents and information in these special grand jury proceedings. Uh, the presiding federal judge in Washington D.C., Judge Beryl Howell, she also presides presides over all criminal grand juries, and thus she presides over the uh, Trump criminal grand juries. And we know that there's at least two, maybe three or four um, right now in Washington, D.C., currently engaged in criminal investigations of Donald Trump. These grand jury proceedings are secret, and they're always secret. And there's a lot of reasons why grand juries are secret. One, you want to One, there's a presumption of innocence. So with all of these documents are flying around in the public, people who are being criminally investigated, we're not just saying Donald Trump, it's anybody, their names would be out there and associated with the criminal uh, conduct being investigated and not necessarily the charges. And it's also to protect the investigations themselves and keep the investigation secret so that the Department of Justice and the FBI can do their work appropriately without leaks uh, damaging their investigation. But inevitably, there are some leaks. So for example, we know some of the victories by the Department of Justice in these grand jury proceedings. For example, Donald Trump has tried to assert executive privilege to block the testimony of his top former lawyers like Pat Cipollone and Patrick Feldman and former Vice President Pence's former top staffers. Um, as well, like Greg Jacob and Mark Short. Greg Jacobs was Pence's former general counsel, and Mark Short was uh, former Vice President Pence's former chief of staff. All of those individuals were forced to assert the executive privilege, frankly, against their will, because Trump was the one who held who holds the privilege, and he was asserting it. And the Department of Justice, we previously have reported this, they prevailed there, got that testimony of all of their communications with Trump. By the way, the January 6th committee was not not able to get that information because of the legal challenges by Donald Trump and by you know the other witnesses which dragged it on until the expiration of the Jan 6 committee but Jack Smith has those the only thing different is that the Jack Smith grand jury is just not public so we're not seeing necessarily what's going on which I think would give people a better deal of confidence if they could see it but there are very important reasons why they are secret Um, And now, and by the way, that takes time. And I've done this before on the show where I was just like, if you called up someone like Pat Cipollone as your witness and you didn't break the executive privilege, if you didn't challenge it before, and then you had to call a critical witness and you're in front of a jury and now you can't get the testimony, you're going to look like an idiot and you're going to lose the case. And unfortunately, these grand juries, they only meet a few times a month. Um, By the way, they're picked from the same group of jurors that are for regular juries as well, except someone's commitment to a special grand jury because it could take many, many months um, at a time. 
it, it, it usually you get a certain kind of group of people who can do that, who don't necessarily um, have the same commitments, let, let's just say. Um, and so you have these proceedings going on before the special uh, grand jury. Um, it takes time. And now we have all of the information that special counsel Jack Smith needs. But Popak, there was another good ruling by Judge Beryl Howell, in addition to the ones I just mentioned. Maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, talk about functioning branches of the government. The, the uh, judiciary branch is functioning reasonably well, especially in the D.C. Circuit and under Chief Judge Beryl Howell. So um, you may have, people may remember from who, who regularly listen to Legal AF and watch Legal AF with you and me, that there is still a battle going on between the Department of Justice, who does not believe, neither does the National Archive, that Donald Trump has complied with the subpoena to turn over all classified information that belongs to him. The one squir- skirmish that everybody remembers is Mar-a-Lago, but that wasn't the only place the, the subpoena that came out of the grand jury was not tied to Mar-a-Lago. It was tied to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump had to, had to, and as an obligation under criminal penalty, to turn over all documents responsive to those subpoenas, no matter where those documents are, as long as they're under his care, custody, and control and knowledge. So Mar-a-Lago was one place. Because the Department of Justice knew that Mar-a-Lago held a large cache of these documents, because they had witness, cooperating witnesses that told them that, um, they went there first. Um, after a series of requests, demands, letters, uh, entreaties, negotiations broke down, they finally had it, went into a, uh, a magistrate judge in South Florida and got a search warrant and went and executed on it, led us to Judge Cannon. And we all know what happened after that with the 11th Circuit and eventually the Supreme Court throwing the book at Judge Cannon and making sure all those documents got back into the hands of the Department of Justice for their criminal investigation. But that's not the only place these documents existed. Trump is, is it's notorious in public that he lives in Trump Tower, his main primary residence on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. And also he spends a, an inordinate amount of his time at a golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, which is very close to Alina Haba's office, which is how they met. So the Department of Justice has always had a working theory and a lack of trust in their negotiations with Donald Donald Trump's lawyers that they're not all, all the documents aren't returned, all top secret documents don't return. And they brought that mistrusting feeling to Beryl Howell. And if you'll recall, um, our listeners and followers, there was a motion for contempt hearing that was held. And at that time, a month or so ago, Beryl Howell hadn't reached the red line yet of finding Donald Trump and his lawyers in contempt for not turning over all the documents. But she did suggest in very, I'm sure, very uh, strongly worded um, suggestions from a judge, really instructions, that Donald Trump needed to go back to the drawing board, do a better job of, of searching all of these places and making a full report back to her and to the Department of Justice. That resulted in two more documents, top secret, classified, being found in West Palm Beach in a, um, a a government facility that Donald Trump had because as an ex-president, you get certain resources. One of them is a storage unit. So he, he had a top, he had a classified or a, um, he just had a government storage unit for a lot of his things. And two more documents were found in there. Who were they found by? Donald Trump said that he hired a private investigative team 
some private people to go search these places and make their report. Well, the Department of Justice doesn't trust Donald Trump for very good reason and doesn't trust these, uh, as of this moment, unnamed, unidentified, quote unquote, private investigators who may or may not have you know, been incentivized to properly search these places. Because even at this moment, even as late as October, Ben, you may recall, the National Archive reported to the Jan 6 Committee that they still believe that there are more top secret and classified documents that have not been turned over by Donald Trump. And nothing's happened between October and now January to change the mind of the DOJ that there's still a cache of documents somewhere that Donald Trump hasn't bothered because he doesn't want to be bothered to go look for. So Donald Trump came up with some sort of compromise where he said, well, Your Honor, through his lawyers, well, Your Honor, I'll, uh, the Department of Justice can talk to my private investigation, investigative team and get all the information and debrief them about how they did it. But we don't want their identity revealed at all. It's not even redacted. They just didn't want the Department of Justice to like know who was on the other end of the call. And the Department of Justice said, no dice, no way. We want to know who these people are, what they did. We want to be able to background check these people, know what their qualifications are for even doing this. Is this is this Cyber Ninjas Part 2? Who is this group that's been hired? And the fact that Donald Trump thought he could actually convince Mer Beryl Howell that he could tell the Department of Justice they could have access to these people but not know their identity was not happening. So the Department of Justice went back to Beryl Howell in the reporting. And on Wednesday, the judge ruled that Donald Trump has to turn over the names and the identity of just who it was uh, uh, that did the search for the classified documents. But one last thing, Ben, before we move on, on to, to the other things I know you want to talk about. The, the Jack Smith special prosecutor-led team against Donald Trump and all the Jan 6 stuff we're not even done. We keep giving the stats of 950 people arrested, 450 plus people convicted either by trial or by plea and more to come. They're not even done with their investigations. I don't know if you caught this, Ben, just, just this week, the FBI and the DOJ sent out yet another uh, um, wanted poster, if you will, because they're still looking for leads to who put two pipe bombs in front of the the. DNC, the Democratic National Committee, and the RNC, the Republican version, they still don't know who did that. So they're still trying to track down Jan 6th insurrectionists and, and defendants and bring them to justice, even one day after the two-year anniversary of January 6th. That's what our Department of Justice in proper hands does. I hear they're giving a $500,000 reward and they may want to post that wanted sign in the House of Representatives in the Republican caucus room. Maybe <laughs> maybe there's some insight there. I don't know. I'm just saying let's talk about the wrongful death lawsuit brought by the estate of the deceased Capitol Police officer, Brian Sicknick. It was filed on January 5th. Uh, the lawsuit was brought by Sandra Garza, his longtime uh, partner, who brought this individually and as a personal representative of the estate of Brian Sicknick. It is a wrongful death lawsuit. And in a wrongful death, it is a civil lawsuit. It's not criminal, meaning that what it seeks is monetary damages. Uh, the defendants in this matter are Donald Trump, Julian Cater, 
and George Tanios. Cater and Tanios are insurrectionists who have already pled uh, guilty. Um, they were not charged by the Department of Justice, though, with uh, murder. Um, the Department of Justice got them on, of, of course, other uh, charges as well. Um, you know, Brian Sicknick passed the day after the insurrection. During the insurrection, he suffered multiple strokes based on the conduct by the insurrectionists in a wrongful death lawsuit. What you're alleging is that as a direct and proximate cause, as, as a cause of the conduct by the defendants you are suing, that caused the death. And it was foreseeable and it caused the death of an individual. And so that is what is being alleged here. And in this case, the estate of Brian Sicknick is alleging that Donald Trump is someone who caused the death of Brian Sicknick. Uh, it's a 47-page complaint. It's very, very, very powerful. Um, I'll just read for you uh, one paragraph here where it says, the peaceful transfer of power is a sacrament of American democracy. Defendant Donald Trump, together with other co-conspirators, defiled that orderly transition through a campaign of lies and incendiary rhetoric, which led to the ransacking of the United States Capitol as part of an insurrectionist effort on January 6, 2021, by defendants Julian Cater and George Tanios and many others. The attack on the United States Capitol cost the U.S. Capitol officer Brian Sicknick, uh, here and after Sicknick, who was bravely defending the cradle of democracy, his life. It goes on to seek monetary uh, damages. The case was filed on January 5th. And so the statute of limitations for wrongful death in Washington, D.C., this was filed in D.C. federal court, the conduct occurred in D.C., is a two-year statute of limitations. So it was brought right before the expiration there of the statute of limitations. And Ultimately, this case, I'm not sure if it's been assigned to a federal judge yet, but you may recall we've spoken about here on Legal AF, the case brought by other Capitol Police officers and members of Congress that was filed against Donald Trump and others. That case was before federal judge Amit Mehta, whether this case will get related to judge Amit Mehta, but judge Amit Mehta was presented with a motion to dismiss filed by Donald Trump, claiming that he was entitled to absolute immunity because it took place during the time while he was the president. And Trump argued that he was effectuating his constitutional responsibilities. Not so, said Amit Mehta there. In fact, Amit Mehta says, this had nothing to do with your responsibilities, quite the contrary. It was undermining what it is that a president is supposed to do. You are not effectuating your constitutional duties to protect and defend the Constitution. And this was about installing yourself in power as a dictator. And it had it had nothing to do with your being a president and everything to do with your campaigning and your PACs and your other conduct um, as not acting in your scope as the president to overthrow our democracy. That case went on appeal for those new legal AFers. Go back and watch some of our past episodes because we covered oral argument before a three-judge panel in the D.C. Circuit where there was one Obama judge, one Clinton judge, and one Trump judge who made up that panel, that three-judge panel there. 
One development with that panel as well that you should be aware of, they asked for, on December 20th, an amicus brief, which is a Friends of the Court brief, uh, to be filed by the Department of Justice so that the Department of Justice can give its view about whether or not uh, they believe there should be absolute immunity here or not. It will be interesting to see what the Department of Justice does. The DOJ's responses do sometime in mid-January because normally the DOJ would want to protect executive branch power. Um, but here, where it was undermining our democracy and where the Department of Justice on the criminal side is involved in criminal conduct, granted there are different standards and different things that would ultimately apply to civil immunity versus criminal conduct, I think the Department of Justice is also going to be very careful, though not to take a position that could undermine what's going on in the criminal proceeding. So why am I mentioning that at all and what's going on with Judge Amit Mehta and the D.C. Circuit? Because ultimately there, that will be dispositive on this Brian Sickna case. And by dispositive, I mean if for whatever reason the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court dismisses that other case that was filed by the other Capitol Police officers, then this case will almost certainly be dismissed as well uh, if the absolute immunity applies. And you may be saying, well, of course he doesn't have absolute immunity. Well, there's a few different cases on this. I mean, the one case is this case is an early 1980s case with Nixon, and Nixon unlawfully terminated someone and retaliated someone uh, for giving congressional testimony. And there the Supreme Court held, look, when you're the president, even if you're doing things that may be unlawful, if it's still within the scope of what a president does, we're just we don't want civil lawsuits to be filed against United States presidents for better or for worse because they're supposed to be trusted as being responsible and 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 whatever um, while they are the president. So, but then you had this Clinton and Paula Jones case where Clinton was sued while he was the governor. And that was on the other end of the spectrum. It predates him being the president. And there the Supreme Court said, that's not conduct during the presidency. This is an interesting one because it falls within the Nixon aspect of it occurred while he was the president, but clearly the conduct was to undermine the Constitution. And so even as we talk later with what's going on in the House of Representatives, this has been such a mass, this fascism from these Republicans and from Trumpism and MAGA has been such a stress test to all of our institutions and our laws and the constructs that we had that were based on these norms and based on the naive view that, no, this can't happen here. This can't happen here. Popak, I, I, anything to even add or not, I just nail it. I almost left the podcast. <laughs> I'll let I you think, take all of the next I, one. No, 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 we're not, we're not. All right, we're not doing that. Uh, just a couple of comments. This, this case also has another hurdle because the um, the autopsy for Brian Sicknick, who died a day after Jan 6th of a heart attack or, or, or of natural causes is what the um, forensic autopsy revealed, although it said a contributing factor was Jan 6th, uh, Brian Sicknick was sprayed with pepper spray. So you got the issue of natural causes. Um, there were, you know, five law enforcement that died either on Jan 6th or after, many by suicide, for those that forget. But they are no no less victims, 
of Donald Trump and the Jan 6 insurrectionists than if Donald Trump strangled them himself. And I think Brian Sicknick falls into that category as well. I don't think a healthy 42-year-old who's serving as a Capitol Police officer dies on January 7th of natural causes if he wasn't sprayed in the face repeatedly um, with, uh, with uh, pepper spray and also attacked and then, you know, died the next day. Um, I think that blood is on the hands of Donald Trump and the others. And the way they framed it in their lawsuit is that, as you read from the paragraph, that the death, that his death was the direct and foreseeable consequence of Trump's actions, including his tweeting encouragement during the attack and, and fomenting that attack. And then to see that as a juxtaposition, the split screen of what Trump's representative said after hearing about the filing of the lawsuit, they actually, I don't want to laugh, they actually said that all Trump did was peace is asked for people to peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard we know that's a bald-faced lie we know from all the gen 6 testimony and witness statements we know from the video evidence of what of what he said we know what he who that they needed to fight they needed to um fight for america fight for democracy go down to the capitol um, i'll be there with you Basically, it was a bugle call to attack the Capitol, no less so than if an army, you know, had the, you know, the person in the front with the bugle and the flag attack. Um, and, and that's what he did and lit and lit that flame and, and fired that missile at the Capitol. So to now say, but this is the delusion of Donald Trump in trying to defend himself in civil and in criminal cases by saying, uh, all I did was uh, exercise my First Amendment rights on the ellipse. I never told him to attack the Capitol. And this is the same guy that wants to um, give, um, if he ever gets back into power, God forbid, who wants to give um, uh, a pass and give uh, presidential pardons uh, to anyone that was anyone, no matter what they did, he never distinguishes it, uh, uh, by attacking people at the Capitol or trying to assassinate uh, members of Congress. So um, I'm glad she filed it. I don't know what took her so long. I'm glad she did it. It doesn't really matter whether it's filed on the first day of the statute of limitations or the very last moment of it. It's in under the wire, but it is under the in under the wire. It's funny. I have a case I'm filing actually on Monday that's going to be right at the wire of a two-year statute of limitations. I got the case sort of late, and I have to scramble to get the case filed because if you don't, you are just out of the box, and you will be easily dismissed on the papers on a statute of limitations. So they did it. They brought it. They're seeking $10 million per defendant including Donald Trump, and we'll have to see who the judges assigned to it. But yes, I agree with you. There's going to be a fight over whether presidential immunity under the Westfall Act and the line of cases that you cited is going to apply to this particular case. If Judge Maida gets it, you know the answer to that is no. And everybody pay attention to what's going on in the Court of Appeals there. The Department of Justice will submit its amicus or friends of the court brief that was invited by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in the next week or two. And then we probably will see a ruling. My guess would be about mid-February. Of course, we'll cover it here on Legal AF. And we've been covering here on Legal AF the $250 million fraud lawsuit filed by New York Attorney General Letitia James back in late September against 
uh, Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, Trump's uh, adult children, seeking at least $250 million, also an injunction that would basically shut down the Trump Organization from uh, conducting further business uh, in New York. Uh, Letitia James has already succeeded in getting a preliminary injunction in that matter where a retired uh, federal judge, Barbara Jones, uh, she is serving as basically an independent monitor. Uh, she's reviewing uh, or she has the power to review material transactions by the defendants in that case other than uh, Ivanka Trump. And she got a uh, brief carve out that we covered in another episode of Legal AF. Um, but here, Donald Trump filed a motion to dismiss. Uh, he was utterly humiliated a few months back in the preliminary injunction hearing where the judge in the case, the New York State Court judge, and in New York, it's weird because the lowest court, the trial court, is called the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is basically called the Court of Appeals. It's just a quirky thing, so I'll just refer to it as the state court or the trial court judge. But Judge Arthur Engeron said in his uh, ruling regarding the preliminary injunction. Look, you haven't provided an iota of evidence, not like a declaration, not a document. And in the special proceeding before Tish James filed this lawsuit, you pled the Fifth Amendment during your deposition over 400 times. So you're not giving me any evidence. And Donald Trump previously tried to make arguments to dismiss the matter during like the special proceeding. And he tried to make these arguments again during the preliminary injunction. And he keeps arguing that the New York attorney general has no jurisdiction. It's always like a jurisdictional argument because he doesn't want to actually share or show any evidence or actually grapple with the facts that he is just a massive criminal and he's involved in a massive fraudulent enterprise. So he goes, there's no jurisdiction and the New York attorney general statute doesn't allow this to take place. And he filed like the same motion over and over again. And here Judge Arthur Engeron was just like, okay, you've made that argument and I've rejected it over and stop bringing the same argument. You're not going to get a different result here. And in fact, because you keep bringing the same argument before me, and then obviously you're doing it, whether just for your press release or just to attack me, he didn't say this specifically, but it's the subtext in this email that they sent. And the court sent an email through the clerk to Trump's lawyers saying, we're considering sanctioning you because your motion to dismiss is so frivolous. Ultimately, no sanctions here were given, but the message was sent. And look, Arthur Engeron, someone who's not afraid to sanction Donald Trump, he previously in the special proceeding held Trump in contempt and was like fining him over $10,000 a day while being held in contempt of court. So Engeron's not afraid. And this was Engeron saying, if you keep doing this stuff, I'm going to do it again. You're going to be sanctioned. And to send the message, stop, you are going to trial in October. And this is an existential threat, this trial, to the entire Trump organization. And we've seen that this isn't a Teflon Don anymore. He just lost in another New York state court proceeding. This one is a, the one I'm now talking about is the criminal proceeding. The New York attorney general case, though, that I'm mentioning before that is the civil case. New York attorney general is the civil case. The Manhattan district attorney is the criminal case where the Trump organization um, was found guilty on 17 felony counts. And they just looked horrible, disorganized. Their legal team got trounced by the Manhattan DA's office. And 
This civil case, which would have, I think, even bigger implications, frankly, than the criminal case, because it would shut down the Trump organization from doing business in New York, it's going to trial in October. The motion to dismiss denied, no sanctions given yet, but Engeron's going to sanction them if they keep up this crap, Popak. Yeah, I agree. I think you co- I think you covered it all. There's nothing I can add. Really? I mean... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't it wasn't that big of an event. He he denied the motion to dismiss. No, you covered everything. Let's move on to McCarthy. Pope, you, you, you left you left me speechless. You're sometimes you're you're in your Pac-Man mode. You gobbled it all up. I got nothing to add. I like it. I like it. All right, Pac-Man. Let you. I'm gonna pass the little Pac-Man peas to you right now. I'm gonna lay the trail for you, Pac-Man, and eat those Pac-Man peas. <laughs> are they peas? What are those circles? Are those peas? strawberries berries i don't know i was miss pac-man i was more of a i was really more of a uh centipede uh player for those that are really old centipede (laughs) pac-man all right popak the chaos mayhem bedlam pick your word incompetence by these MAGA republicans we were covering it all live here on the midas touch network one of the most watched destinations for what was transpiring this week uh, it was the first time since 1923 that someone seeking the speakership uh, with their party in control did not secure it on the first roll call vote. We went through 15 roll call votes by the time we reached Friday or into the early hours of Saturday morning, depending on where you were watching it. McCarthy didn't know how to count. He thought he secured it on the 14th roll call vote, but with Gates voting present, he did not have the votes. Then the Republicans called for an adjournment, then voted against their own adjournment, and then they secured the votes because McCarthy had to literally sell shares of himself. I mean, he gave up everything. He will be the weakest speaker. He's the 55th speaker in the history of the United States. He will be the weakest in history. And rather than trying to form a deal with Democrats and actually govern, he's made these concessions. Uh, Let's create select committees that are going to attack the Department of Justice and that's going to attack the FBI. We want our own select committee that's going to do that and then attack the January 6th committee. We are going to make sure that we can default on our debt. That was a big one. So your Medicare is at risk. Your Social Security is at risk. Your 401k is at risk based on the concessions to allow the United States of America to default on our debt when we have to discuss the debt ceiling hike. And I think that this crew, based on what we've seen, is going to do that. They're going to cause the United States to default on its debt, also giving major uh, committee assignments to all of the extremists. Marjorie Taylor Greene becomes essentially the de facto Speaker of the House on one hand, and Matt Gates the de facto Speaker of the House on the other. And one of the other concessions is, is that one single member can make a no confidence vote, which can then result in a roll call vote to remove Kevin McCarthy. So the exact thing that we just saw, if Gates wakes up one day and goes, you know what, I want to do a roll call vote right now, that is now part of the rules. And then McCarthy can be ousted right away. And it appears that there are certainly enough votes, more than enough votes, to oust Kevin McCarthy in that situation. And so there's just going to be more chaos. And 
On Friday night, early Saturday morning, they were supposed to put together a rules package. They didn't have the votes to even vote on the rule package. But, you know, what happens then? I don't think there's any moderate Republicans anymore, but but what happens? One of the major concessions as well is to defund the military. Um, about $100 billion in military cuts because one of the things the Republicans want to do is make sure they punish President Zelensky and they want to fight to make sure Ukraine loses the war against Russia. That, that's not hyperbole. That's, that's what they want to do. They want Putin to win. And so one of the concessions that McCarthy agreed to is defunding the United States military. You can't, you can't make this stuff up it is it is chaotic it is fascist it is weird it is dangerous i hope america is paying attention i was glad that so many people were watching our stream because the large media networks want to say well if a moderate republican can do this and uh, the conservatives are doing that these people aren't conservatives okay they are fascist they are crazy they are radical they are extreme do not call these MAGA Republicans conservative. And Kevin McCarthy is weak. It, the whole ordeal was frankly utterly, utterly disgusting. And to your point, Popak, while I enjoyed seeing the chaos at some point, at some level, as it proceeded to like the third or the fourth roll call, I was just getting very, very angry. Talk to us about it. Yeah, and insecure about what it what it demonstrates to the rest of the world. I mean, it, it's no it's no um, understatement to say that the rest of the world looks to America as the beacon of the hill beacon on the hill for democracy. They do, and they 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 put their hands in their they put their head in their hands when they watch things like Jan sixth, and and it, and it, there was no lost irony that all of the tumult and chaos and almost violence, um, a fistfight almost broke out on the House floor by the Republicans. All the chaos is on the Republican side, all of the unity and uh, unified, galvanized, arrayed maturity was on the other side of the aisle. So that's good news. But, but it all almost broke out and devolved into a Lord of the Flies survival movie um just just one cannibalist act short of a horror movie on jan 6th and and none of that jan 6th other than in a couple of nominating speeches was not really acknowledged at all by the republicans how could it be when when most of the people it's the same it's the same overlapping suspects that brought kevin mccarthy to his knees and weakened the institution of the Speaker of the House for a long, long time, at least for as long as they're in power for the next two years. Um, and they did it all, they did it all on Jan 6. Those same people are the same people that allowed the attack on our cradle of democracy, on the people's house, as they like to call it, the same chant that went up by the insurrectionists themselves. So the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene, Gates, Bobert and the others that were all co-conspirators in my view, in our most of our view, in what happened on Jan 6th, in the attack on the Capitol, in the almost assassination of elected officials. The fact that they are in charge, that, that Kevin McCarthy has conceded the leadership of the House 
I don't care what his title is. The real leadership of the house are these six lunatics, unpatriotic lunatics, who have now in their hands the bomb-making ability to blow up the house on a given on any given day, any given. There was there's an old movie about football. Any given Sunday, any given day, one member, as you said, of their of their caucus of their of their Republicans can can fell McCarthy to his knees again and make him do their bidding. Um, for for those that take some kind of cold comfort in the fact that there is mature people in charge at the Senate in the form of the Democrats and that no bill will get passed any of these crazy bills that they're considering will get passed without the Repub the Democrats in the Senate approving it. Let's also remember from civics class and from Schoolhouse Rock that all spending bills have to originate in the House, all things related to the debt ceiling and the functioning and the financing and the funding of the government have to originate in the House, meaning the Senate is powerless to do anything about funding and debt ceiling. And if the majority, which it looks like they're going to do based on the fact that it took them 15 rounds in the 12th hour and almost a fist fight to elect their speaker, you you can imagine what that means for them governing. If you love that, wait to, if you love, if you love that preview, wait till you see the movie because starting Monday, if they ever get around to passing the rules package, which if they don't pass, and it's not done yet, they, they still can't govern. Yes, they have elected officials now because now they've picked the speaker and everybody got sworn in, including one George Santos. But they can't do anything until they get the rules package passed. And there's, that sausage making is not done. And they're not done taking not only a pound of flesh, body parts and organs out of Kevin McCarthy in order to um, in order to get the votes to pass the rules package without which he, he cannot govern and there cannot be any governing. So they're going to do what other past Republican majorities have done unsuccessfully, despite that it's been unsuccessful, they're going to do it again. They're going to bring the government to its knees. They're going to do a shutdown. They're not going to approve the increase in the debt ceiling and they're in order to extract all of their s small government, anti-Ukraine, anti-woman uh, policies and procedures. And if they don't get what they want, which is to have ultra, ultra right-wing MAGA conservatives on- I'm checking you. I'm checking you, not conservative. Uh, all right, I know, I know, but I'm, I'm still using the old language, the old vernacular. Having right. those people hold the gavel in committees, subcommittees, special committees, and and blue ribbon panels, it, that's what's gonna happen. You People are, sh are rubbing their eyes and shaking their head today. Wait till they see what uh, what Marjorie Taylor Greene gets in terms of a gavel, Matt Gates, the others, and what policy tries to come out of there. And when they're not, so they're really, they got two things, they only have two major, it's going to be a very binary process for the Republicans now. They've only got two things that they can do. It's like a child who's given one of those play school driving kits to sit next to their mom and dad and act like they're driving the car with with the gears and buttons that don't really work. They've only got two. They can F around with the debt ceiling and shut the government down because they're not going to approve spending bills. That's a big one. And they can open up all sorts of investigations against Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, Jill Biden, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Fauci, 
uh, and the like, and, and, and while away all their time doing that. The problem is, for the Republican Party, not for democracy, the problem is this is a losing strategy to get reelected and, and keep the House when Joe Biden wins his reelection in 2024, because that is not the takeaway from what happened at the midterms. The takeaway from what happened at the midterms is that America wanted, wants its democracy back. And they wanted their democracy back and they gave the Senate back and even stronger to the Democrats. And they gave, barely gave the Republicans a majority. They didn't give the Republicans a majority. The governors of states that handled the gerrymandering of electoral maps to make states like New York, which were always reliably blue, cough up a few red seats like George Santos that gave them just enough of, a, I mean, the most slender of majorities and you see what happens when you have a slender majority, but you have a broken party that's really in factions and the factions start fighting with each other and cannibalizing each other in public, on C-SPAN, on Midas Touch Network, in front of the world to see and electing. You think electing the, the speaker was, was rough? Wait till Monday. Wait till Tuesday. Wait till, wait till debt ceiling. And the rest of the world is holding their breath collectively because of the tremendous impact America has on the economy and the democracy of the rest of the world. There's an old, there's an old joke, Ben, I'm sure you know it. When America gets a cough, the rest of the world gets the flu. And if we're going to screw up and put our country into default and default on all of our treasury bonds and notes and payment on our debt, you, because they want to pay, they want to give Joe Biden a terrible economy for which to run from when he runs for office again in a year and a half or so. That just shows you how unpatriotic they are. They don't care about America. They don't care about democracy or our, or our ideals. They just want to stick it to Joe Biden. They are unpatriotic. I mean, they're 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 horrible. They're horrible traitors. They need to be called out for who they are. Uh, four points I want to make. One, you mentioned the economy. Um, uh, Two hundred and twenty-three thousand jobs uh, in December, beating expectations. 3.5% unemployment, the lowest rate in 50 years, 4.5 million jobs in 2022, one of the best years ever behind 2021. In terms of inflation, this is from the Wall Street Journal, inflation in the second half of the year has run vastly lower than in the first half. In fact, and this is astonishing, it's almost back down to the Federal Reserve's 2% target, even more astonishing, hardly anyone seems to have noticed what we notice here on the Midas Touch Network and when you pass an Inflation Reduction Act and when Congress works for the people and actually takes action to address situations, you get results like that. And what we're also seeing as we head into 2023 is a number of those provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act and some of the other legislation that a working government passed, we're going to see reduce prescription drug prices. We're going to see the fact that pharmaceutical companies can't raise prices at rates higher than the rate of inflation. We're going to see bridges uh, being built and infrastructure being built and Wi-Fi brought to towns and communities across the country. Now, second point, and it's related to that, is what was going on in juxtaposition to the chaos uh, and bedlam by MAGA Republicans in the House of Representatives. You had President Biden in Kentucky uh, with Mitch McConnell. Uh, Mitch McConnell looks rational and reasonable compared to these MAGA Republican chaos agents. I mean, how bizarre is that? And he's not, but relatively, 
he is because that's just how crazy lunatics these MAGA Republicans in the House of Representatives are. But you have McConnell praising President Biden and both of them just talking about the importance of infrastructure, showing that bridges are actually being built. They were at a place where a bridge was being built and infrastructure was being built and the importance of bringing jobs here to the United States of America. So our economy is bouncing back stronger than ever after the Trump debacle. Um, And this is a time, to your point, Popak, where the MAGA Republicans want to hurt the United States economy. That's my second point. My third point, George Santos. George Santos is like, that whole George Santos uh, drama George Santos being an utter complete fraud and him being embraced by the MAGA Republican Party seemed to have found his crew hanging with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, And he was showing people like memes of one of the memes he was showing people was the one where uh, it says McCarthy picked the speaker and there's a bunch of speaker uh, graphics um, and the actual speakers are there, but the M- McCarthy head was not being uh, checked off. He's like showing people that he's like apparently throwing out the white power symbol. There's like photos of him doing that. He's being peppered by questions and running away. Like it's just humiliating too and weird (laughs) to have someone like George Santos there. And and, and they don't give a crap, the MAGA Republicans. I mean, McCarthy needed his vote. We see how close it came that Santos's vote was pivotal to McCarthy and that they have to embrace they have embraced. That is the party. Someone who's lied about every aspect of his life, including that his grandparents are Holocaust survivors, that his last name is Zabrowski, that his mom died in 9-11, that his mom survived 9-11, that his dad survived 9-11, that four people who worked for him uh, died in the Pulse nightclub shooting, that he went to this college and he worked here. And everything the guy said is a lie. And he's there basically sitting around like with 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 like poop in his pants and nobody around him's like dude you smell like shit like he's just sitting there like santa's like whoa, 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 whoa. and it's like it's like what is going on and i couldn't help but make the observation that it's like you got santos you got mccarthy you got them literally throwing punches at you you got fist fights breaking out and then you have this image of katie porter on the other side just like reading a book You know, and Democrats all there, all voting together, all giving speeches about how they want to advance the economy, protect the rights of women over their bodies, to focus on the economy, to focus on equality. Like it was very policy driven and things that matter to the American people. And then you just had the MAGA Republicans give these like horrific speeches. They're just so bizarre and weird. That brings me to my fourth and final point, which is Hakeem Jeffries the Democratic leader, the minority leader, who would set to become the Speaker of the House. He looked like the real Speaker of the House yesterday or in the early hours of today. That's for sure. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries gave an incredible speech where he gave all of the contrast between Democrats and the MAGA Republicans alphabetically. He went A to Z, and it was one of the greatest speeches I think I've ever heard in my life equal to maybe better than the Obama convention speech in 2004. It was that incredible of a speech. And to have a leader like that with real power, really focused on the issues of American people, that's why I'm proud to be a Democrat. 
not arbitrarily because I want to own the the megas. No, I want adults in the room. I want to have people who I may disagree with on certain issues, but ultimately I know that they are adults, that they are focused on actually issues that matter to the American people, that everything isn't a lie or a trick or a scam or trying to enable lies, tricks, and scams to help a weird oligarchical MAGA world. No, we want to help people get jobs and make those jobs better paying and then give them health care and make the working conditions better and lower prescription drug prices and give people access to education and make education affordable and accessible and build up our infrastructure. And when our veterans not defund the military, when our veterans come back from abroad fighting courageously for our country, we want to give them the best health care that we can give them rather than fist bumping each other and celebrating the fact that we're denying them health care for exposure to toxic burn pits like the Republicans did a few months back. All of that is horrific and heinous. And in 2023, one of the other observations, I said four, I'll leave you with five and then give and let you have the final word, Popak, though, is the importance of independent media. Couldn't be more important now than ever. I noticed that so much when we were doing our stream and more people were watching our streams now than watch the large media networks because the large media networks that both sides the issue, oh, there are extremes on the left and extremes on the right. Not really, no. I mean, There's the whole Republican Party is a fascist extremist party. And then you have adults on the room on the Democratic side. And when you say there's an extremist, what, someone who wants to invest more resources into climate change, which is real and trying to address it like the media doesn't have the language and they're too corrupted by their investors or whatever it is to actually use the right language, and in fact, to perpetuate narratives that are very detrimental and then actually aid and abet fascism, not to mention destinations of fascism like Fox that simply spread propaganda and inject it into the veins of those who watch it. So independent media is more important now than ever, which is why we tell you, please subscribe to this YouTube channel right now. If you're not subscribed, it's free. And spread this video, spread the message, tell friends, family, colleagues, coworkers, whoever you know, even people who may disagree with you, share this uh, YouTube channel, share Legal AF with everybody, share the Midas Touch podcast and all of our other contributors with people that you know. It is existential and is a little thing that you can do, but if you start doing it with one to two to three, five, 10, 15 people every day or every week, it has an exponential effect. That's how we've grown here on this Legal AF where we started off with a small audience and now have very, very, very big audiences that meet and sometimes exceed the large media networks. Also, if you're so inclined and no pressure here, you can check out patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch. We have lots of exclusive content at patreon.com slash Midas Touch, but you sign up you become a member of patreon.com slash Midas Touch. And in addition to the exclusive content, by becoming a member at the different membership tiers, it supports this independent media platform. It helps fund it because we're not funded by any outside investors at all, period, zero. That's how we're 100% independent, 100% accountable to you. And of course, we are 100% unapologetically pro-democracy in everything we do Michael Popak? I'll give you the final word. Okay, I have a nine-point plan. I'm going to go one at a time. No, 
Uh, I want to I want to connect January sixth, and I want to reflect on it for a minute, because I wasn't kidding when I said it was shocking and depraved to watch those that allow Jan six to happen and deny that Jan six was what it was, were in control of the House yesterday in selecting their speaker, with showing no irony, or remorse, and even on the graves of those who died on Jan sixth and there are many of them, they were fighting on the House floor, showing the lack of decorum and dignity and leadership that goes that should go along with that job. But there's something else that that Jan, that I'll remember Jan 6 for. You and I founded this show about six months before January 6th. But it was January 6th and everything that's happened after it and all the coverage that we've done that has so solidified and galvanized our vision for what this particular show, the lane that it would occupy, um, really came together around that same time. I'm not saying that we wouldn't be where we are without Jan 6. I'm not crass. What I'm saying is we found an audience and we resonated with an audience and we found what distinguished us from everybody else out there coming off of Jan 6 and beyond. It's been two years. It's not, it's not, it's not lost on me that you and I are here having this conversation once a week. We have it with Karen Friedman Agnifilo on Wednesdays, and we do other things throughout the week to support the cause, but that it, it comes on the heels and we stand on the shoulders of those that protected the Capitol on January 6th. And so it's a moving day for me, and it's one that got completely lost. It be, it's become so political that when Joe Biden, our president, commemorates Jan 6th. It's sort of lost in the food fight and the jello throwing that was going on by the very people that caused Jan 6th to happen or allowed it to happen over on the on the House side. And we should be commemorating Jan 6th, those that lost their lives, those that protected the Capitol, as if it were any other memorable and commemorative day in our history, whether it's 9-11, whether it's, it's December 7th, and and vj day and all the rest but you can see already it's getting trampled on the memory of it is getting trampled on by the republicans who want to ignore it bury it forget about it minimize it and i don't and you don't and the people that follows this show won't michael popak well said want to thank everybody out there for tuning into this edition of legal af we so appreciate you this is more than just a network it is a community and we are so grateful for all the hard work that you put in each and every day supporting our democracy here and abroad you are our inspiration again check us out at patreon.com slash midas touch you can also check out our merch at store.midastouch.com. I think you'll love the Midas Touch merch and especially the Legal AF merch you can find there. That's store.midastouch.com. We will see you next week. Popak and Karen Freeman Agnifilo will see you during the midweek. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Popak. This is Legal AF, the most consequential legal news of the week. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. <laughs>